Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifte-Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by returning guest Ali Pitts of the podcast Russophiles Unite to talk about Media Evil's first silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Hi, Ali. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me back. It's very kind of you. Thank you very much for coming back, and thank you for encouraging me to do this particular film. Yeah, it's just one that I'd been aware of for a few years, just as being this kind of like legendary silent film, like Mm -hmm. one of the most famous ones of the silent era. I finally watched it, I guess, I think it was earlier this year, and I was just like, okay, this lives up. Sorry, probably spoiler alert for my rating, but uh, (laughs) this lives up to the hype and it's medieval. I'm definitely (laughs) talking to to you about this if you'll have me. So here we are. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert for my rating as well. But so I watched this for the first time this week and I often am hesitant to watch silent films. I often tend to assume that they won't be as... Not good, but won't be as like fun as films with sound. Mm. And really enjoyed this and felt like very engaged. So, oh, fantastic! I'm glad yeah. that yeah, it wasn't me wholly just you know responding to received opinion of like this is great and therefore I will think it is great. You know, I definitely was suspicious as to whether it was going to be the kind of thing that was like you can technically see that it is good. versus actually something that you find enjoyable and I think it was both and so that was definitely a pleasant surprise in some ways yeah I was gonna say like how many silent films roughly do you think you'd seen before this one very few not zero but very few A, a a a lump a number that you could potentially count on on fingers yes absolutely I, I am just at the point now where I have run out of digits to to count them on. I okay. think I'm I, I obsessively use letterbox now, so and I am doing this kind of silly, eccentric personal project. In the interest of trying to be like well watched as opposed to well read, mm-hmm. where I'm trying to watch fifty films from each decade from the twenties onwards, because I feel like if I do that okay. I'll have like a kind of good broad range of like good films that are out there yeah. and probably some not so good films as well. And the 20s is the is the decade where I have the most work to do, followed by the 30s. So the further you go back, the less I have watched. Yeah. Yeah, I only really started watching a lot of silent films when I landed on that as a odd mm-hmm. personal project. So some of them are are a bit of a slog just because pacing and yeah. reading title cards. Yeah. So there you go. But I'm glad this wasn't a chore. No, and it's actually interesting because, of course, so this is a, it's a French film. And so you're sort of, you know, the title cards, you're actually reading, I mean, they're reading the subtitles anyway. Oh, that's an interesting point then. So were the title cards that you were reading and that, or, or that were on the copy you watched in French? Yes, it was French title cards and then English subtitles. Oh, okay, because the version I watched had Danish title cards. because, And, you know, it's worth mentioning, it's a Danish director, but I think it was shot in France. And I'm going to say, certainly the lead actor who's playing Joan is French, 
I yes. did not do my homework on the supporting cast. <laughs> but I'm guessing there's a good chance they will be. At least some of them are French. And uh, so the director, and we'll get into this a little, so the director is Carl Theodore Dreyer, who is, as you said, a Danish director. The project was funded by the some kind of French cultural association, I think. And the lead actress, uh, Renée Jean Falconetti, is also is French. And she's known mostly as a stage actress. And this is, I think, her only film role. That's, I think I read that somewhere too. And apparently all the stage stuff that she was famous for was light comedy, which is kind of like, right. okay, casting against type there. <laughs> yeah, it's such an interesting casting choice, and it absolutely works. And I think it's interesting that she's a stage actress, because she has such an expressive face. Oh my goodness, And she's very good yeah. at these kind of like, like facial movements that... The film actually has, I would say, more of the title card dialogue is actually the judges than it is uh, Joan or Jean herself. But because of her face, she actually says so much that she doesn't textually say. And she has just these big, big eyes. And yes. you know, you know the old cliche about the eyes being the window to the soul. Well, these are big mm-hmm. windows. These are big, big windows. Yes. So the only thing that I found a little bit odd is, of course, that they did hire somebody who at the time was 35 to play Joan, who's supposed to be 19. Yes. it's. I guess it's a tricky one in the sense that you need somebody who has the acting chops and yeah. the experience to pull this off. And finding somebody who's of that tender age might be tricky. Yes. So I think it ultimately works. But when we when we talk about our own film versions later, I'm going to talk a little bit about casting from that perspective. Yes, yes. Cool, cool. I also wanted to talk a little bit before we get into the film itself to talk a little bit about what I know of the story behind how this film was uh, created, as well as how we have the various versions that we have today. Yes. Yes, we have this Danish director who makes this film. And it already, I think, even before anybody had seen it was controversial because all of these French nationalists thought it was just absolutely inappropriate that somebody who wasn't French would make a movie about Joan of Arc. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting in in the very opening title cards, it talks about Joan being a woman who died for her country and... At Mm -hmm. the time, an awful lot of people in France would have known somebody who they would have perceived to have died for their country because Mm -hmm. this is like the year it comes out is 10 years after the armistice that ends World War One. So of course, right? Yeah. And France lost, I want to say it was upwards of a a million soldiers in that conflict. So everyone would know somebody who'd who died. Mm -hmm. Uh, in that war. So very possibly that's heightening some of this uh, discomfort about a non-French person making this uh, story that's perceived as a kind of French nationalist story. Yes, although I'm sure we can get into some of the like nuances and details of, of, yes. of that later or as we yes. go along. And then once the film came out, it also sparked controversy because it annoyed a whole bunch of other people. The Archbishop of Paris was annoyed because he saw it as being anti-Catholic. Well, maybe your lot should have thought about that before you burnt her at the stake, but you know... <laughs> 
doesn't you don't right, come, like you don't come out of it looking particularly great. No, and I mean, okay, like the best you could do in terms of making it not anti-Catholic would be to I don't know fast forward and add in the bit where they rehabilitated. Joan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the trial itself sort of is what it is, as I'll talk about more later. Mm, mm, yeah, very much so. And yeah, like my lot apparently super thin-skinned about this thing that we were responsible for, you know, 500 years previously. Right, but I think in particular they thought the portrayal of the English soldiers, who are these kind of bumbling but evil buffoons. <laughs> yeah. That they bumbling that evil buffoons who are British. That... that Makes me think of somebody, but I can't think who. Uh, <laughs> uh, there you go. Editorializing a bit too much there, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. Fine. We've got lots of political editorializing on this podcast. But yes, yeah, so there were a number of cuts made against Dreyer's will, apparently in particular cutting some bits that were perceived as being particularly anti-Catholic. He then, so there, there was original his original cut, and there was another cut that he made that tried to restore some of these things. So basically there were multiple versions floating around, but I think both of his cuts were lost. And then in 1981, rediscovered in the janitor's closet of a mental institution in Oslo? Yeah, that's what I'd heard. Yeah, it surfaced, this one longer print, yeah, surfaces in a psychiatric institution, like two-ish decades after the director's death. So I'd love to know the story as to how it ended up there, but... That's the only detail I know, is that it's just like, oh, look what we found. Right. And it's fascinating, this uh, this story. And I I think I must have watched... uh, So the version I watched was 82 minutes. Okay. So clearly one of the shorter cuts. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder whether, you know, when you see silent films, sometimes the runtime is just like some versions just play slightly faster. Um, Yeah. So I don't know how much of that is just stuff being cut out versus like the speed that it was going at but yeah the version i uh, saw right. was 90 96 minutes okay but it really flies by yeah i found yeah no it's definitely a quick film yeah because i mean i normally think of a sound era film that's about 90 minutes as being that's a quick film but my perception mm-hmm. of that normally with if it's a silent film that changes a lot <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> you've got all these title cards to read. Yeah, it's a lot of reading. Yes, uh, and a lot of concentrating on everything that's happening on street- screen when you when you can't just rely on your ears some of the time. Yes. So now we can, I guess, get into the first proper section, the enumeratio or recap of the film, which is just essentially goes through the trial of Joan of Arc. So that's actually one of the things that I think is really interesting about this film is that it's really exclusively about her trial and execution. It doesn't have any of her, you know, being in battle or leading people or talking to the king none of that is included in the film it's just the trial yeah the literally the first time we see her she's being led into essentially a courtroom and it also i will note begins and i love this with talking about the document it says that the library of the chamber of deputies in paris that has one of these extraordinary it describes it as one of the most extraordinary documents in the history of the world that being the minutes of the trial of joan of arc and we actually have an image of the document which i'll uh, i will talk about later oh yeah that was something i found slightly unnerving was just how like casual they were with the documents like you just have these hands <laughs> just like f- like flipping through the documents i'm like those are really old be careful <laughs> <laughs> Though I feel like 
things often tend to be like when you're actually in archives and you're just sort of flipping through. Uh, you're actually, people now recommend against using gloves often because oh, it can actually make you less careful. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I remember hearing like different schools of thought on that. Like on the yeah. one hand, yeah, it protects the stuff from the st- stuff on your hands but on the other hand yeah you're less sensitive yeah when you've got a layer of stuff between you and the the text but anyway, right yeah i imagine that what was used for the film is probably a facsimile uh but i certainly know. hope so <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine the archive having actually allowed for them to just film this yeah but it, it, i mean i don't i've never really spent time working with medieval documents so i don't my opinion is worth like less than nothing but they look quite (laughs) convincing like the props department did a good job right and some of these things i mean there are really excellently produced facsimiles although i don't know exactly what that process was like back in 1928 as opposed to more recently yeah so who knows as i said i'd i'd be surprised if the archive is actually letting them like take and film a document but i could be wrong yeah i mean some of the stuff that I hear about how kind of cavalier people were with how they treated objects in the past. Like I went to, this is getting on for 10 years ago now, but um, an exhibition at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were talking about how like people were just kind of smoking as they were piecing together these (laughs) tiny fragments of like two millennia old parchments. I'm just like, oh my goodness, people, people. What are you doing? I mean, as somebody who works regularly or back in the day used to before I wasn't allowed to go, go anywhere. anywhere. <laughs> yes, but back in the day in when the I worked times. regularly. Yes, in the before times when I worked regularly with medieval documents. The documents that I work with mostly are some of the oldest paper documents in Europe. Some of them is from the third from the kind of mid 13th century. Yeah, like paper as opposed to vellum. Yes, exactly. So they kind of are crumbling just a little. Ooh, okay. Uh, as in like you turn the page and there's just like kind of document dust. So just like little teeny tiny pieces of paper from the edge that like fly off and you leave at the end of the day and they're on your clothes and they're on your computer and you're like this. I am this walking around with the past all over my shirt. Yeah, yeah, that literally it's like, you you know, oh, like I open up my laptop when I get home and just the like document dust just flies out. Crazy. Yeah, it's fun. Well, documents are fun. I'm always mm. glad when they acknowledge that there are uh, documents I, and sources. Uh, yeah, I just, just the idea of it's just so nerve wracking for me of like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah. I miss it. I'm excited to go back to an archive one day. With this yeah. pandemic being hopefully sort of almost finally over. Oh, let's hope so. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, the film then gets into the trial itself and uh, has uh, Joan give her name, emphasizes the fact that she doesn't know exactly how old she is or that it kind of takes her a minute to sort of figure it out. Yeah, I wondered how realistic that was. It's like, would your parents really not be able to tell you that? <laughs> like, 
But is that is that reflected in the trial document, or is it just people didn't care about birthdays to the same extent back then? That I believe actually is in the trial document. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's something that you you don't necessarily follow that closely. Uh, this is an era that is a little bit before parish records are even recording baptisms as carefully and as consistently as they later would. So especially for somebody who's coming from this lower socioeconomic stratum, you know, I mean, she's a peasant it is very possible that they have a kind of approximate knowledge, but that she doesn't know her exact birth date. Mm, Yeah. And it's just notable how sneery the leader of the trial, it's uh, Pierre Cochon. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know who the other guy he's talking, but they just like give each other this knowing look and are just like, what a rube. Yeah, and the thing that's emphasized even already in the title cards very quickly and then is very clear as you're watching the film throughout is the fact that it's these uh, adult, all-male, very, very highly educated, in many cases very powerful clergymen and theologians. Mm. And that they are experts in doing this sort of thing, that they know all of the tricks, because they're very much our tricks for getting people who are accused of heresy to say what you want them to say, and uh, that she is a 19-year-old peasant girl. Yeah, yes, the the power is very much all stacked in, in mm-hmm. one area. And she's at this point been in prison for many months as well. Is that right? Or at least for a while. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, she's already been in prison for a bit. And there's also been a bit of uh, essentially passing her around because so she gets captured. And initially, the assumption seems to be the English having some kind of ridiculous like treason trial. And that's not what happens. It's an ecclesiastical trial for heresy. And uh, this is actually something that uh, Cochon and some other figures in the church are pushing for is to be able to do a heresy trial. But there is some amount of back and forth about exactly what she's going to be tried for and therefore by whom. Right, right. And whose who's jurisdiction this, this falls under. Yes. And I'm guessing part of the motivation for going with the heresy trial is to discredit the yeah. king of the king of france who is the enemy of the english and the burgundians so that's kind of like yes. huh, this person who you were very closely associated with is a heretic so what does that say about you right and Dynamic. discrediting her as well because they are really hoping to get rid of her without making her a martyr, which obviously they're not successful in. I was going to say, yeah, how did that work out for you guys? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But that's the hope, is that they could discredit her so thoroughly that there wouldn't be a martyrdom narrative surrounding her. Yeah. In terms of examples of, like, spectacularly, things spectacularly backfiring in the whole of world history. Yep. But it is interesting to think about the fact that somebody was actually thinking about this and trying to figure out what the best optics would be, as opposed to, say, something like the murder of Thomas Beckett, where nobody thought for two seconds clearly about the very obvious, like, bad <laughs> optics of the, that whole situation. The, the PR fallout of, like, yeah, offing the... Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury in his church. Like slaughtering him over an altar, essentially. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be some serious penance. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, so it's interesting that here at least they thought about it. It just ultimately didn't work, obviously. Yes. uh, uh, Plans of mice and men, (laughs) etc. Oh, yes. 
We go through essentially just a lot of the trial itself. They talk about God and uh, whether God hates the English. And she's pretty smart in her response to this. I thought that she just says, I I don't know anything about how God feels about the English. I just know that they're not going to be allowed to stay in France for that much longer. Yeah, yeah. And her answers are like, they frustrate her interrogators because then she's not falling into the traps that they're trying to set for her. In a way that's really impressive, because uh, these kinds of lines of questioning and the tactics that they're using for this for the questioning that they're doing really comes out of the at this point, you know, rather long couple hundred years tradition of inquisitorial questioning, which is very much designed to trip up and trap and confuse uh, people who are heretics, Mm. or who are perceived as being heretics. Yeah, and to get people to the point where they say a thing that you can go, ah, this contradicts our rule, so we have to kill you because you said this bad thing, and you said it. It's not just us killing you, it's we're killing you because you're terrible and you said this. Exactly, and that in a lot of these uh, these transcripts of inquisitorial trials, you can really see this power imbalance as well, and in particular the ways in which inquisitors take advantage of the fact that they are, in most cases, much more educated than the people they're questioning. Yeah, it's really gross. <laughs> yeah, and these people, these are people who don't necessarily know the right answer, theologically speaking. Mm, and they don't know that they're being potentially set up to say something incriminating. And it's even these kind of awful things where, so sometimes you have these cases where people will say something like, basically, I don't know, I think that the right thing is whatever you say is the right thing. And then the response is, that's exactly what a heretic would say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just somebody who is intimidated by being dragged before people who are much more powerful and educated than them, and just, yeah, being slightly rabbit in the headlights. Yeah, and probably have a kind of confused theological background of local folk beliefs and things that their priest told them, which might even be wrong depending on how well-trained their parish priest is, and maybe sometimes a heretical preacher comes to town, and if you're a regular person, how do you necessarily know the difference between the heretical preachers and the orthodox preachers? Mm, Indeed. So yes, a lot of these poor people who, like, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's as a depiction of, like, sort of abuse of power and authority this film is yeah. really powerful yes and but yeah but as you're saying i think it is really interesting because joan's answers are really smart that a lot of them she is very careful in her responses and doesn't give them the ammunition that they need mm, yeah they do talk about the particular issue of cross-dressing and the fact that she's wearing men's clothing and even say like, well, if we give you women's clothes, will you wear them? To which she's basically like, no. Well, no, she no. says, she essentially says, she almost like tacitly acknowledges that she's kind of acting outside of societal norms. But she says, yeah. once God's mission for me has finished and is accomplished, I will go back to wearing women's clothes. So it's kind of like, yeah. she's acknowledging the societal taboo against cross-dressing but she's Mm -hmm. kind of also saying i'm doing this because i'm on a special mission from god and therefore like the normal rules don't apply i mean she doesn't say she doesn't explain it in so many words but her answer is like 
acknowledges that she's doing something that's outside of the norm and that she yeah. realizes that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting as an answer. Yeah, that it is very much this kind of representation of the fact that she has this particular mission. So she's standing by that, but she's also not, she at no point is claiming that she say is planning on, you know, living as a man, which she's not even doing when she's wearing men's clothing. She just, you know, this is what she's supposed to do. God told her to do this while she's on this mission. And then she will return to the status quo of wearing normal women's clothing when her mission has ended. Mm, Yeah. And I listened to some podcasts with Dr. Helen Caster, I think, who's written a book about Joan of Arc, and she pointed out Mm -hmm. that a lot of the, especially early on, when Joan was travelling around, part of the reason she would have been dressed in male clothing was to kind of keep a low profile in terms of, like, not falling prey to men who might want to essentially sexually assault her for being a lone, vulnerable woman surrounded by men. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, Yeah. yeah, she's wearing male clothing partly for her own safety. And some people have even pointed out that just structurally men's clothing actually gives more protection from rape. Yeah. Just in terms of like coverage. Yeah. Sounds gross to say logistically, but Yeah. Yeah. But there is a logistics to it. And and in general, I will say, you know, the whole thing is really very practical, right? It is, uh, it allows her to keep this low profile in various ways, avoid sexual assault. And also when you're on a battlefield and might have to move or run at some point, even though, you know, she's mostly leading and not necessarily an active combat per se, but that's still, you want to kind of move around and women's clothing isn't really designed for that. No, it's, yeah, it's not particularly designed for, like, the sorts of thing you'll you'll be doing in battle, like sprinting and not tripping. Exactly. Not tripping over your skirts. Yeah, but that's just not what women's clothing is intended for. No. So, yes, it's really very practical. We have a lot of kind of sinister whispering from the judges. We do have one who says that he thinks she's a saint and prostrates himself before her, to which the others are not super pleased about. Yeah, they're like, get with the program, man. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) They also even attempt to trick her so they can get a confession. And uh, I will note now that the the emphasis on confessions is really important because it is actually considered to be the case that you, it's almost impossible to actually judge somebody guilty, especially in a heresy trial, without having a confession from them. Yeah, even though this is totally like, it's, the trial is not done in good faith. Like, they are trying oh, no. to get her to say these things. but the, the, the rules are you, they have to say the thing that is bad in order for you to be able to move to the next level, by which I mean execute the person for heresy. Like, right. you need to get them to say the thing that you want them to say. I mean, maybe I'm being naive. <laughs> it didn't always, I'm sure it didn't always work like, like that. But, but yeah, in this case, they seem to be very much like, we want to document this so that, you know, we've crossed crossed the T's and dotted the I's and like, what were we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. She incriminated herself. And that in a lot of ways is pretty standard with this sort of trial is that not that they are what we would consider an acceptable form of justice, but that there is a procedure and procedure is very closely and carefully followed. So that Mm. means, first of all, that it's not that rare that we have this much kind of detailed representation of uh, the minutes and every single question that was asked. 
because this case was important, our records are slightly better and we have uh, multiple documents, uh, you know, multiple copies of the minutes. And we actually have the verdict, which sometimes they just don't actually include. They just like forget to include the verdict sometimes. Um, (laughs) Priorities. Right. But it's not uncommon that, you know, because there is this procedural concern, we do have a lot of the records of what kinds of questions were asked, uh, how a person was pressured in some cases by torture into giving a confession. And uh, it is also, as I said, pretty consistent that they won't punish you without the confession. It's just that they're willing to do a lot and take very extreme and horrific in some cases measures to get you to confess. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, I don't wish to portray this as being anything resembling a fair trial, but it's just like they have have set themselves some rules that they are interested in following so that they at least kind of can make the argument that a procedure was followed. Yeah, and I think that that's I think that's important to think about is the ways in which like procedure and justice are not necessarily equivalent, which is also obviously the case in, you know, current court systems in many ways as well. Uh, But yes. Hey, we followed the form, so it must have been fair. Yep. We can ignore the fact that, you know, we have, say, an entirely white jury judging a case involving a person of color. Cough, America, cough. Well, and just, yeah, I mean, in the UK, they, being the the conservatives, like, drastically slashed legal aid a few years Mm. ago, limiting, if you're from a less privileged background, one's Mm -hmm. access to somebody who will actually do a good job of representing you, because... You know, they've got yeah. no interest in they've got no interest in that. But there yeah. you go, editorializing again. Yes. They end up starting to they end up figuring out a strategy to try and elicit a confession for her from her through trickery. In particular, that they are going to basically forge a letter with Charles's King Charles's signature. Yes. I really like that you actually see them very meticulously copying the signature. There's so many documents in this movie. I really like it. Mm, which is interesting because Joan can't read, but she might be uh-huh. able to recognize Charles's signature yeah. on a on a page. Well, I wondered about mm-hmm. that whether it's more likely to be his seal if we were being pedantic about it. I think in this period you'd very possibly have both. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Because we're getting to the point where the nobility at least are actually literate whereas a few centuries before Basically, everyone is except the clergy. Right, yeah. And so Joan is not literate, but that there, that certainly, I mean, Charles would have been, and many people, Mm. especially men associated with the court, would have been. And actually, at this point, even, you know, I mean, we're not too far out from Christine de Pizon, who is, of course, a, you know, French woman professional writer, essentially. You know, literacy rates are very much on the rise. So, yeah, the idea that a signature could be recognizable, especially if it's, very distinctive. That's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. And uh, while it makes sense that somebody like Joan couldn't read, it doesn't not make sense that there would be an expectation that there would be people of even, say, kind of the middle classes who could. Yeah. And look, look, here's here's a document. Makes our, makes yes. our story sound that bit more plausible. Yeah. Joan also, in she when she's in her cell, she has this interesting little, like, twine crown thing that she's made. 
Mm. She's kind of playing with that. She also sees a kind of little cross mark on the wall of her cell created by basically the shadow coming from the bars. Yeah, and that seems to, we just see a reaction from her that seems like that encourages her, mm-hmm. like strengthens her confidence to carry on. Yes. We have our buffoonish evil English guards who come in and they kind of rip the ring off her finger. Oh, yeah, that's really hard to watch. Yeah, like the way they twist her hand is just is just very disturbing. Ugh. Then there is this one priest, and I'm not, I don't actually remember which one this is supposed to be of the many people involved in Joan's trial, but he basically comes in with this forged letter. He claims that he has compassion for her and then shows her the letter and then just reads it. So again, it really could have, they really could have brought in pretty much anything because she doesn't know how to read, but they did go through the trouble of forging this letter that they uh, have the king's signature on. He tells her that the king is about to march on Rouen and then says, oh, this priest that I've I've sent him to you and he's really trustworthy. (laughs) Because of course he is. Of course. Poor Joan does seem to fall for that because in the next segment of the trial, there's a lot of him sort of nodding encouragingly at her. Mm. And so she's now a bit more forthcoming in her answers. Yeah, Helen Cast, uh, Dr. Helen Caster described like the way that these trials would often work as, as being like you'd essentially have a medieval version of good cop, bad cop going on. Yeah. Just as that was part of the way that they got to you. Yeah, so we see that happening and that uh, she's uh, agrees that she thinks that, you know, God is going to send her to heaven, that she is assured of her salvation. And they comment on the fact that this is that's a dangerous answer that the idea of saying that you based on your personal visions are assured of your salvation, regardless of what the church has to say is dangerous. Yeah, and maybe I'm messing up the chronology here. But there is a point at which one of the clergy says, says you realize you're he doesn't say it in so many words but essentially saying you're turning your back on on the church and you'll be totally alone mm-hmm. and she says alone with god and they're like yes that's an annoying answer i mean again they don't say that but they're just like oh, she's got us again and it's interesting yeah because they ask are you in a state of grace and she sort of nods and then realizes, oh, that was the wrong answer, because you don't want to claim that you're in this state of grace and that, you know, nothing that you can do or that the church has to say matters because, you know, that's that's heresy. So then she kind of corrects with, if I am, may God keep me there. If I am not, may God bestow his grace on me, which is a smart answer. It's a great answer. She's covering all her bases there. And then just like... Yeah. Uh, wish she hadn't said that. Yeah. And some of the anger that you see from these like powerful men that Joan is just like essentially not giving them what they want and making this yeah. thing last longer than they want it to. And just some of the, the vitriolic anger, like it's it's really well played in the performances, just like the reactions. Like there's this one bit where this rather burly um cleric just like starts screaming at her and she's like he's right next to her to the point that i couldn't decide whether he deliberately spat on her face or whether it was just like he's so angry that just stuff flies out of his mouth and just lands on her cheek and it's just like it's so repulsive yeah and i mean just all of the visuals the way that they emphasize the power disparity Mm. is just i think 
absolutely brilliant. Stunning. Like, so much of it is the camera angles. Like, you often are looking up at these uh, these powerful figures mm-hmm. and, like, kind of down, down on Joan, Joan yeah. and she's looking up. And it's very elementary stuff, but it works so well. And yes. often just, like, the focus is held on Joan, whereas mm-hmm. often it will kind of, like, the camera will glide between the court, essentially, like, as mm-hmm. they're confirming and exchanging glances and it just kind of yeah. gives this sort of like conspiratorial feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. Like anyone who has any illusions about like somehow because it's a nearly hundred year old film that the filmmakers weren't sophisticated. It's like, yes, they mm-hmm. had much more limited tools at their disposal, but they use it in such smart and effective ways. It's it's really impressive. Yeah. And the acting, you know, in a silent film, I mean, acting obviously is in some ways very different, but the acting is excellent. And so we've talked a little bit about Joan already, but I also do want to shout out some of these, the actor playing Pierre Cochon and some of these other judges and theologians that just, they really just pull off this like sinister whispering oh, my so goodness. well. Just like the casting director in terms of like, I mean, I don't know how, <laughs> who was responsible for the casting, but just the faces <laughs> They're just like so cinematic and just, yeah, yeah. the performances are big compared to like modern performances, but they're not like as cartoonish as some people might associate with films of this age. There's a lot of like just like quite subtle gestures conveying things. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think it is relatively subtle, but there's just a lot of like, you don't know what they're saying, but you know it's bad. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And yeah, I just think it's so well done. Yeah, and I just found myself just loathing these guys just for how sinister they were. Although I found it was interesting that you do have, like, as we already kind of mentioned in passing, you do have a few of the clerics who are kind of like, have a somewhat open mind about maybe Mm -hmm. this person isn't a heretic. And the rest of them are like, that's not what you're here for. We're here to get a a result and you're letting your consciences getting in in the way. I mean, no one says any of this stuff. I'm just kind of like reading things into the looks that are exchanged. Well, and it is interesting. There actually is, I I don't remember the the names of all of these assorted people, but there was at least one person who after the trial was basically like, this was ridiculous and I don't think she's a heretic and I think you were wrong. And then he got bullied into retracting that statement. So some like really sinister high-level quote-unquote office politics yeah basically so yeah it is interesting is because you know they're they're bringing in a lot of people and i believe it is correct that there is a pretty large panel of judges and some of them are very overtly biased against her but some of them aren't but social pressures are such that they don't really get to make much of a difference yeah yeah but i think in in terms of having that nuance there makes the film like despite what the French Catholic Church at the time said, mm-hmm. it's not an overtly like straight down the line anti-Catholic film because it's not yeah. portraying absolutely everyone as being completely like devoid of conscience. I also find the entire idea of this being an anti-Catholic film bizarre considering that Joan is obviously also Catholic and in fact is a saint. Mm. Although it's worth mentioning... <laughs> This film was made less than 10 years after she was canonized. True, so true. It's, it's kind of weird that it's yeah. that recent in terms of like 
when the film was made. She was rehabilitated and the heresy conviction was rescinded within about 30 years, maybe? I don't remember the date yeah, offhand. Yeah, 20, uh, 25, 30, I think. Yes. Yeah, but that she was not formally canonized until I think it's 1920. Yeah, and <laughs> it was just kind of like the Catholic Church were like, mm, we don't want to talk about her too much because we kind of killed her. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that she is formally recognized as a martyr, that she actually even didn't have to have as many miracles recorded because she kind of gets a pass because she is considered a martyr. Oh, which is okay. interesting because again, they're the ones who murdered her. I didn't realize that. I was I was a bit fuzzy on on on, yeah. on that aspect of it of whether she counts because she certainly views yeah. us, at least the way the film depicts it. She views herself oh, yeah. as as when she realizes she is definitely going to die, that she yeah. is going to be a martyr, and they're like. Mm, no you won't yeah no she is formally acknowledged as a martyr by ultimately by the catholic church so Mm. so again i mean it's like i think it's overly simplistic in a lot of ways to call this an anti-catholic movie Mm. she has to be allowed to hear mass and there are a number of negotiations over the question of whether she gets to hear mass and take the eucharist or the body of christ she is basically they're like well, if you dress as a woman, then you can go to mass. And she's like, no, though. And they're like, oh, well, apparently you don't want it that badly after all. Yeah. That's very upsetting to her. Yes. We go back to our buffoonish guards who now are, they kind of take this twine crown, which they place on her head. It's very Jesus crown of thorns. They also kind of grab this arrow and put it through her shirt so that it looks like, it, you know, which is kind of referencing like a St. Sebastian sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Like slash, like maybe holding a scepter, like she's a, yeah. a, a king. Yeah, it definitely has like the vibe of, as you say, the crown of thorns slash, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus having a robe put on him and the Roman soldiers like bowing, yeah. like mock bowing down and going, ha ha, you're a king, ha ha, except, you know, you're not. Yeah, definitely. I think the, like the identification of Joan with Christ is very mm-hmm. on purpose. It just like, it's oh, yeah. it's too too obvious to be an accident. I imagine this is probably one of the things that the English found particularly unpleasant when they banned this film, (laughs) was the essentially equation of these English guards with, like, the persecutors of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, not wrong necessarily, but... I mean, they did admire... In our imperial phase, uh, we admired the Romans in a very uncritical way. There you go. Imperialism. It's great, isn't it, folks? Yeah. Uh, No, it's not. Anyway. uh... (laughs) They take her to the torture chamber and begin some preparations there. We've got a lot of emphasis on the Catherine's wheel or breaking wheel, which I will discuss later. She comments that even if you tear my soul from my body, I will renounce nothing. And if I do say anything afterward, I'll say you forced it out of me. Which I think is a great line. Yeah, it's very, it's very like, you realize that torture doesn't count. People will say anything if they're in enough pain. Yeah, and she very much acknowledges this. But so then she faints. They're worried that she's going to like just die, which uh, they are not, which they are not happy about that idea. This would not serve their purposes for her to just die in prison. Mm, Very much like we need to get the confession out so we can execute her and it will be like everything was a 
above board, you know, really yeah. twisted, gross way. Yes. They're trying at this point to keep her from dying. Uh, they bleed her. I will say the the one effect in this movie that does not particularly hold up is like the blood spurting from her is uh, not the most realistic. It did make me feel super squeamish, though. <laughs> mm, there you go. So it accomplished something. So at this point, they do start to set up for mass, which she is very pleased about. But they then basically hold the letter of abjuration that they've written for her before her. Again, we have a lot of documents in this movie and uh, say basically, you know, no, no Eucharist for you unless you sign the document. Yeah, which is... Again, super gross. It's really interesting the way that they visualize this and that this even, like, they really do present this as a form of torture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, psychological torture of, like... Yeah, the withholding of the Eucharist. Yeah, which, yeah, her theological understanding would have been such that it's like, no, I need to have this to be... Yeah. Right with with God. And so them using their power over her in this way is just incredibly manipulative and awful yeah they do really also try to make that hit home for her saying that you know you are refusing the body of christ that really they are hammering home the you know according to their doctrine real presence of jesus in the eucharist in order to really kind of up that pressure on her yeah it's psychological torture because she yeah doesn't believe she's done anything wrong but they are yeah. like punishing her for not like like going back on what her conscience is telling her is right. And she does say, say at this point that, you know, you're saying I'm sent by the devil. You're the ones who are sent by the devil. And there's this kind of great little bit where she's like you. And then like it's, she like pauses and is like, and you, and you. And we kind of get close ups of a lot of these uh, particularly unpleasant old men. Just just being like, how dare she? It's like, well, yeah, you're not coming across as super righteous, to be honest, guys. Oh, no. Oh, no. I find this scene really excellent. And just her, again, her facial expressions and the real expression of anguish on her face mm. when she is denied this and when she's calling these people out is it's really excellent. Yeah. They're really able to create just so much drama and so much suspense in this movie which is basically taking place like with no dialogue in two rooms and indeed it suffers from although it doesn't because and this is a testament to how well they do it it suffers from titanic syndrome in that we all know how this story ends (laughs) yeah yeah um and yet they still like amp up the tension and the as you say, the drama of, of the moment. Yeah, that they make you feel suspense, even though you obviously know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Which does include, so she is uh, brought out, she actually is forced to watch as they dig her grave, which is, of course, on unconsecrated ground, and also is, like, I guess, previously used. Mm. Well, and she had asked, because she's very ill, like, will you bury me on consecrated ground, at least? And they don't no. say anything. Here we see that it's obviously not on consecrated ground, and they even disturb someone else's skull. In a very chilling image, we just have like half of the screen taken up by this partially earth-covered skull with these maggots wriggling in the eyes. It's just like really like pouring on the gothic horror of like impending death. It's like... Yes. This is going to be you soon. And also, I think another Christ reference, I mean, really emphasizing, you know, the Golgotha, that mm. this is, uh, you know, that there often is this skull, this like skull that's depicted at the base of the crucifixion, acknowledging that this is a place where 
criminals were crucified and then like buried directly beneath them. So I think that's a kind of Christ reference as well. And uh, Mm. so again, really emphasizing Joan as a Christ figure. Yeah. And it feels slightly like Hamlet-ish in the, it's it's the kind of like mortality right in your face. (laughs) Well, and because that is what we have in the film is ultimately convincing her to sign the document. She does finally sign in order to save her life. This means that she's no longer excommunicated, but that she's you know still going to be subject to life imprisonment with the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction. So like, not... thanks, thanks, guys, rubbing it in. Of course, also that he, one of the clergy, praises her for having saved her soul as well as her life. But you can already even really tell in her facial expression that she doesn't feel so much like her soul has been saved. No quite the opposite. We again introduce a lot of uh, drama in the gradual process, uh, which will of course end in her ultimately recanting her confession, that we go back and forth between her hair being shorn. For some reason, there's a lot of emphasis on like hair being shorn in films about the medieval and early modern world. Mm. We see these, like, fools capering outside. There's, like, a lot of professional contortionists that they seem to have grabbed for this one scene of this movie. Yeah, it's this kind of, like, weird juxtaposition of her at her lowest ebb. We've seen her through all this anguish, but, like, the moment after she's signed this confession that was forced out of her, she's really, like, in anguish. And then you just have these people, like, capering in a funny way. It's kind of like, that's a weird juxtaposition. Yeah, so you have the people capering, and then we have Joan, and we have Joan's face, and we have this close-up on the brooms sweeping away her hair and her little twine crown thing. Mm. That's basically when it sort of hits her. She asks for the judges to be called back and says that she lies, that she only confessed because she was afraid of being burned at the stake, and that she takes it back. Yeah, and they're like, you realize what this means? And she's like, yes. Yep, the priest has come to prepare her for death, and I have never been so happy to have watched that, to watch somebody be able to uh, to take the Eucharist. I think <laughs> it's just like, good for her. Good for you, Joan. Yeah. I'm really happy for you. Yeah, it's just, yeah, at least you get some kind of consolation, but mm-hmm. oh, goodness me. Yes, I am. I'm glad she gets that at least. And she also very overtly recasts her, the, her previous vision of her being freed as as this, that she is asked, uh, you know, what about this promised victory? And she says, the promised victory is my martyrdom and that my freedom is my death. Mm, yeah, so she's able to make what she believed she was promised still true for her, in spite of the circumstances. Right, and it, it, it's a little, like, true from a certain point of view, yeah. but, uh, but still, you know, she is uh, she is recasting her death in a way that is making it meaningful to her, and that mm. is, you know, very much in line with Christian martyrdom narratives. Yeah, yes, she's not, like, massively off-base from that point of view. Yeah. And at this point that they are really emphasizing that what is in some ways so disturbing to some of these men about Joan is that she does have this air of sanctity. And I'll talk a little bit more about sanctity and mysticism later. Yeah, it's not like she's screaming and like cussing them out and calling her them all these terrible things in anger over her predicament. She's kind of like accepting it with sorrow, but with like this impressive fortitude and they they'll be well versed in their 
hagiographical and mm-hmm. martyrological narratives. So they'll just be like, uh-oh, this is ringing some really uncomfortable bells. Yes, that she's fitting just perfectly into very traditional models of mysticism and of martyrdom and of sanctity in ways that, yeah, are undoubtedly going to make a bunch of people who very much see themselves as pious Christians very uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, crap. Are we in the process of wrongly executing a holy person? I hope we're not. And especially given that, you know, you have these people who clearly are biased against Joan and really care much more about the politics of the situation than anything else and fundamentally really don't care. But as uh, as we said before, you also have a lot of people who just got dragged into this mm. who are getting increasingly concerned. Yeah. She is able to make her kind of final confession to our uh, our one, I guess, genuinely nice priest, who's the one who also allowed her to uh, to take the Eucharist. We have a sign hung up describing her as a relapsed heretic, apostate, and idolater. This sign is also the one other thing that it's like, this is just like a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kind of slightly spend, suspend disbelief that it, lasts longer than she does in the fire. She is then brought outside, and we also have a lot of emphasis on the reaction of the surrounding population in Mm. uh, the city of Rouen, which is where she's being burned. The guards really have to keep people from rushing forward. Somebody gives her water as she's walking to the stake. Yeah, we also see... Am I getting this right in the chronology? Or was this before at, like, the... Well, it wasn't a mock execution because they were going to execute her, but then she recants. But we see a very close up of a a woman nursing a baby. I think it was at this point, but I thought yeah, that, I think this is here. Yeah, I thought that was an, again an interesting juxtaposition between like somebody like a very newly born baby versus mm-hmm. somebody who is like on the cusp of their death. And it's also possibly meant to kind of bring to mind, both in the audience and also for Joan herself, the future that like she might have grown up expecting for herself, mm-hmm. but now is going to be denied her because of what's happening. But that's a very powerful, yeah. symbolic moment. But also something that does tap in again to certain kinds of models of sanctity, because of course this is a period where you would be constantly inundated by images of the Virgin Mary nursing Christ. Oh, indeed, yeah. So it's tapping in as well to these same ideas about the Virgin also as this model of sacrifice that she, you know, nursed this child who would ultimately then die. Mm. I think, again, it's kind of linking up as well with these uh, kind of traditional martyrdom narratives and uh, this kind of these kind of connections, of course, to Christ himself as well. Right, right, right. She's kind of given a cross that she's holding that she's holding for a bit, although this is ultimately pulled out of her hands and she is put on the stake. I will say also the effect I think this is really well done because they obviously are not able to do the like CGI actually representing like her being on fire Mm. in the way that they probably would in a film coming out today. Yeah. But that by going back and forth between the crowd and the smoke and her face, I think they do a really effective job of giving the impression of her being burned at the stake without actually having to show that visual. Yeah. And they still, I don't know whether they used a dummy or, well, I mean, I guess they would have had to have used some kind of dummy, but it does go to like a quite convincing human form at some point that is yeah. on fire and yeah it's it, i was surprised how unflinching it was in terms of that yeah like it's 
I mean, it's partly the like the black and white and the smoke, but it does look very plausible. And you're not like mm-hmm. <laughs> this very key moment in the film isn't undermined by going, well, that's a crummy oh, special yeah. effect. <laughs> no, I mean, it's excellently done as a, in a way that I think really does hold up and is is very affecting. And they, yeah. they also have a real kind of, yeah. Conveys the horror of, of what was being done to her, yeah. We also see the people basically rising up in revolt and being brutally repressed. We also, for some reason, have this one guy who's just running around with a goat, and I'm not sure what that's for. But... <laughs> I did not spot that guy. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does like descend into chaos at the point where where she's yeah. been and yeah, very very violently like yeah, but like the this like uprising is put down by the soldiers in the castle. It's quite quite brutal. Our last close-up is on the piece of paper, which does last longer than Joan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our final uh, ending crawl uh, says that the protective flames surrounded Joan's soul as she was taken up to heaven and that her memory will be honored for all time by the French people. So yes, we have this very much, I would say, kind of ending emphasis on this uh, sanctity narrative for mm. her as well. Yeah. I don't actually know the director's religious affiliation. No, I I don't. I mean, him being Danish at this period, I would guess that he would be Lutheran, but that is, right. you know, making the assumption that all Danes were the same right. 100 years ago. It's, <laughs> it's a, bit, a bit of a stretch. But this definitely seemed like it was made by somebody with, like, some kind of, like, at least Christ- like sy- sympathies for the Christian faith, at mm-hmm. least in some kind of yeah. way. And certainly like very much behind Joan and yes, her position. Absolutely. So this way we can get into the Vera et Falso, where I talk about what this film got right and wrong. I will say pleasantly, it got a decent amount right. Hooray! Yes, a rarity. (laughs) Exactly. First of all, I wanted to talk about her trial minutes. And I did look up where the very, there are five copies in total of the minutes of Joan's trial. One is indeed in the Bibliothèque de la Chambre des Députés, manuscript number 1119. If anybody wants to go look it up in the aftertimes, (laughs) I assume you could as a researcher go and look at it. Of the various copies, it is the one that is physically the largest and also the only one that's on vellum rather than paper. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And I think the going theory might be that this is the copy that was actually made for Pierre Cochon. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So this guy who's, yeah, the Bishop of Beauvais and who's this like very central figure in the film and in Joan's trial in real life as well. Right. Right, right. Just to note also that so these all of these minutes are in Latin. And essentially, the way this would have worked is that there would have been a notary who's basically responsible for translating as they go. Okay. Yeah, that they might have like taken some of the notes in French and then translated them into other copies, or that some of them might have been kind of translating on the fly. So that's pretty common is that almost always what we're seeing are Latin translations of uh, of uh, trial proceedings that would have taken place in the vernacular, because obviously Joan wouldn't have understood Latin. No, <laughs> right. And that's usually the case of people who are accused heretics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been a, an even like extra level of of injustice if they were con- conducting the trial in Latin. I mean, she wouldn't have been able to answer any questions. Yeah, like... <laughs> just gonna, we're just gonna <laughs> yell at you in Latin and just be like, huh, "Yeah, you refuse to answer, huh?" Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, that didn't happen. But yeah. Okay. So, yes. n- so none of the actual like 
would it be Middle French or Late Old French as uh, is come down in the documents? Right. No, that uh, that the documents are basically pretty much all of this Latin uh, translation. I uh, I haven't looked at the originals. Sometimes in trial records, you have kind of bits here and there that are either still in the vernacular or that have words that are essentially just Latinized versions of vernacular words, because Mm. sometimes in particular, the people who are being interrogated or people who are brought in as witnesses might use words which don't necessarily have an easy Latin translation. Yeah, which fair enough. If you're trying to do this on the fly, it's just like, oh, we'll get something down. Yeah, so sometimes you do have these words which are basically just Latinized versions of what are clearly the local vernacular mm. words. But I, as I said, I have not looked at the uh, the original for this particular trial. But uh, I will say, material culture-wise, I couldn't find a picture. But this uh, this looked pretty. It looked pretty close. It certainly looked like something that you know could be a 15th century vellum set of you know like nice copy of trial minutes okay oh cool yeah they did their homework the script looked about right to me both on that and on the other documents that we saw over the course of the film it looked about the right era okay that's like one of my things every now and then that every now and then i'll look at it and I'm like that's supposed to be the 13th century i mean you're using a 16th century hand mm. <laughs> because the yeah. way people wrote is different there's kind of traditions of the way people write and what their writing looks like that differ based on place and time Mm, right, which, you know, makes sense. Which is, uh, you know, one of the things that you learn. And so, uh, yeah, often, as I said, I'll watch something and it's like, this is supposed to be a 13th century book and you're using like a 16th century book hand. But this had actually, it, it looked 15th century French to me, which is, you know, not not an area where I spend a lot of time looking at documents, but I've seen some and it, it looked about right to me. Okay, yeah, the only thing so, I really job. have to compare it with is like copies of the Magna Carta that I've seen, which are obviously... Mm-hmm two centuries before this but yes to a lay person this it looks quite similar it has similarities but there are also there are also differences i mean i'm sure i imagine stuff does change quite a bit yeah 200 years but like to the untrained eye yeah so you know so so to my trained eye it actually looked like it was 15th as opposed to 13th or 16th centuries kudos Good, good job yeah, I mean, it is, and my guess is actually that, you know, there are things that they actually looked at the original manuscript and that they actually kind of made copies of things. So, again, good job. Mm, cool. The one material culture thing I will note that is not especially well done would be the architecture, but I assume that's just a kind of practical consideration, that it's really, it's just, it's very kind of sparse and non-distracting. Yeah, the funny thing was, I read that they actually spent an awful lot of time and effort on the sets and and money and resources, but at the same time, the director said that he didn't particularly care about the clothing and and the architecture. It was... Yeah. The thing he was bothered about was was the text, but yeah, it's kind of mm-hmm. funny that they went to all this time of an effort on on the architecture, and you don't see very many like sweeping vistas. <laughs> it's mostly right. quite claustrophobically shot, which mm-hmm. adds an awful lot to the atmosphere of the film. But yeah, oh yeah, and when you do see details, and there's a there's one moment where I think you essentially see these kind of crenellations on the exterior of the building, which are kind of a gesture at the Gothic. Mm. <laughs> but at no point do you see, say, the medieval cathedral of Rouen or anything that actually looks like that. Yeah, a lot of the stuff looks very Spartan compared to 
yeah gothic architecture yeah i think the set really is it's interesting that they did spend a lot of time and money on it because it does really feel essentially like a backdrop with the sense that it's not supposed to distract from the action yes and the faces yes and it's all very white too in particular yeah, the contrast is very is very notable. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a black and white film, but uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, sure, <laughs> but, it is, it's, but it's clear, but it's clearly like you can tell that it's just like stark white walls. Yeah, but it gives this this like emphasis on the people's features in a way that I think, especially perhaps in black and white, that it would have been a really different effect if you'd had as a backdrop actually the site of, say, you know, a gothic cathedral or like a stained glass window or something. Yeah, a bit distracting. Yeah. I will note also that, uh, so in terms of the uh, the trial test, there are some things that it does well, but one quick note of something that hit me as a little bit of an off note is that Joan swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is a phrase that I feel like is, I just feel is like very, it just feels very English to, like Anglo-American to me. Mm, yeah, it sounds like a very modern formulation. And I will say it's actually, I thought it was modern as well. It actually does have origins, it seems, in English common law, but this isn't an English common law trial. This is an ecclesiastical trial, which has its own norms and procedures for oath-taking. And this phrase, in fact, does not, as far as I could tell, appear in the trial transcript. Though, as I said, that's based on an English translation. I did not look at the Latin. Uh, yeah, and my Danish is very limited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in terms of the translation, it uh, I'm pretty everything like goes by relatively quickly in some ways, but I think that is both the translation and the French title cards, and, and that makes sense the translation of the French title cards, and is what I saw in the English translation of them. Sure. So in the torture chamber, we have this big emphasis on the Catherine wheel or breaking wheel. Yeah, looking at that, I was kind of like. I don't know how this is supposed to get information out of anybody. Wouldn't this just, like, straight up kill them straight away? (laughs) Yep, so pretty much, yeah, it does. Or it at least, like, breaks your body beyond recognition. Uh, Sometimes it would be a little slow is, you know, the only thing to kill them. So sometimes, you know, you also cut their head off. But the point is it is actually exclusively an execution method. Nobody's using the breaking wheel just to interrogate somebody. Yeah, it's not designed to hurt you enough that you'll talk but not enough that you will die and they basically did like a version of waterboarding essentially would be probably the kind of more one of the more common torture method yeah in terms of interrogation so obviously not like obviously all disgusting but it is i think to some extent it's that you know the visual of the catherine wheel is very striking and so that's what's emphasized because it's a striking visual but it's not something that would be in a torture chamber and something as to be used as an interrogation method yeah and they really linger on it and you just see the guy yes. like cranking that thing faster and faster till it's just going like yeah. at a point where you can't see the spikes anymore and just like okay yeah. i would definitely find this intimidating yes one thing that i will note that i liked however about the emphasis on the breaking wheel so it is interchangeably called the breaking wheel and the catherine wheel and the reason it's called the catherine wheel is because it's often associated with saint catherine of alexandria because she was condemned to be executed on the breaking wheel and then miraculously she broke it and instead they just beheaded her like not getting away that easily god still wanted her to be martyred he just wanted her to like make a big point about it first i guess about like i could get out of this 
Yeah, exactly. I'm ultimately not going to. Ultimately, I'm down to be martyred for God, but I could. Yeah. So it has this association with Catherine, and I do like that as an interesting touch because Catherine is one of these saints that Joan regularly references as somebody who shows up in her visions. Hmm. Yeah, because we don't get very much detail on her visions in this film. They talk a bit about, like, when St. Michael came to you, was he wearing clothes? Was his hair Mm -hmm. long? They talk about that, but that's, at least if memory serves, the only bit where they're getting into specifics. And this one kind of very, like, he kind of has this, this kind of, like, sweaty... I guess you'd call it bangs, like fringe hair, mm-hmm. very large. Priest is like, was he naked? And it's just like, <laughs> and he seems to be very interested in this answer. And she's just like, uh, do you think God wouldn't have clothes for him? Right. And, just, and he's just like disappointed that she's not like, yeah, yeah, right. super, super naked, super naked, super naked, washboard abs, Saint Michael, man. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he he does seem very disappointed by the lack of right. saying something salacious. Right. Such a disappointment. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll talk more about mysticism, but there are certainly mm. are mystical visions where uh, a naked St. Michael with washboard abs would not have been out of place. Good to know. <laughs> not Jones, but right. Some. Okay. But that does then lead into the trial record. And I will say a lot of this film very clearly is taking things pretty closely from the trial record itself, or otherwise feels very true to the text, including the fact that, you know, she's she's up against like this group. It, it is 60 judges. <sighs> just like how insanely intimidating to have yes. all of these people just like pointing their intellects at you and you're yes. a 19 year old peasant. Yeah, and I I didn't count, but I think the film absolutely represents the effect of this mass of educated older men. Mm, yeah, like towering over you, like in a, it represents it very physically, but yeah. just in a kind of like intimidation kind of way. And one of the things that I think is also uh, worth noting is that the trial record as you read it, and this is again a record that is produced by the people who condemned her, is so unsettlingly biased that they actually used it at her can like for her canonization. <laughs> right. In terms of, you know, again, ultimately declaring her a martyr. Yeah, wow. Just martyred by her own church. Yeah, not their finest hour. Uh. Yeah, the film also emphasizes a couple of real points of contention that appear in the trial records, including her choice to wear men's clothing, which she does very overtly state is God's will, her conviction that she is assured of her salvation, which is obviously something that is a dangerous thing to say from certain perspectives, and these negotiations over whether or not she can hear mass, all of that is in the trial record. Okay, yeah, that seemed like stuff just from a, if you're making a film, even nearly a hundred years ago, that you wouldn't particularly get into if it wasn't based on stuff that was in the text, just because I can't imagine people even a hundred years ago would be particularly caring about those details. You're not putting those in necessarily for the drama, although they, they do do a great job of like making them important to us. Yes. As viewers. Yes. I think they successfully, right, give a sense of why these questions matter to people who aren't medieval historians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know how I would respond to this film if I didn't know anything about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the like 
relative amount of knowledge I do have about these things, I think definitely enriches the experience and it helps mm-hmm. me understand the stakes. But yeah, so I'm hard, it's hard to say how good this would be to somebody coming at it without any of that background. Yeah, I would be really curious to hear the perspective of how this holds up to people who don't have a lot of knowledge about the medieval period, since the, the kinds of questions that they're asking, like, I spend enough time just looking at this material that I can pretty quickly be like, oh, this is the thing they're trying to get her to say. And these are the kinds of concerns that are at work. And this is the, and these are the discourses that she's engaging in. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious as to what resonance these things have if you don't have that familiarity. Yeah, yeah. The thing that does get mostly left out, as hinted at before, is the visionary aspect of Joan's mysticism. That, as he said, we have this one conversation about Michael, but we don't have a lot of emphasis on specifically the kind of visions and voices as things that are influential to Joan. And uh, we also do uh, do cut out our dear friends Margaret and Catherine, uh, Saints Margaret and Catherine, who appear quite prominently in Catherine in, uh, in Joan's visions, mm. including even that when when she recants her initial confession, she actually refers really overtly to conversations with the saints in terms of why she's ultimately recanting. She says that God sent her word through St. Catherine and St. Margaret, quote, of the great pity of this treason by which she consented to abjure and recant in order to save her life, that she had damned herself to save her life. She said that before Thursday, they told her what to do and say then, which she did. And that further the voices told her when she was on the scaffold or platform before the people to answer the priest boldly. And she kind of goes on to basically say like, yeah, all of these things that I am doing and saying are things that I was very directly told from God or from these uh, these saints and in these visions. That is, I think, to some extent left out to emphasize in some ways her internal strength and internal conflict. Mm, Yeah, if you show those things, I guess from the viewer's point of view, possibly removes the sense of conflict and doubt of like, am I doing the Mm -hmm. right thing? If it's going like, well, there they are, she can see them. So yeah, and I think in modern terms and representation, if it's perceived as something that's, you know, real, that she's being told what to do, it arguably undermines her agency from the perspective of, you know, people in the 20th century watching. Yeah, I'm only doing it because, (laughs) because the saint told me to. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, I think, in its own context, is really interesting in terms of the fact that she very much always justifies pretty much everything she does as something that is like direct orders Mm. from God or one of his representatives. That this, in her own context, I think really makes a lot of sense. And is something that to some extent, I mean, you know, obviously their represent their version of it is uh, from her and from the perspective of her enemies is that, well, it's actually the devil who is telling you to do these things. And, uh, you know, he's appearing in these forms that you incorrectly are perceiving as Michael or Margaret or Catherine. But that from her perspective, you know, she very much is saying like, no, it's not me who's just deciding to do things. It's that I am actually, you know, have this mission from God and I'm getting constant instructions from these figures of uh, unquestionable orthodoxy. Yeah, which, again, like, if you show that on screen, makes her, like, harder to identify with for an audience. I don't know whether that's part of the directorial decision or just, like, whether representing, like angelic or divine figures in a with the technology they had available you know just wouldn't be convincing or whether they had any interest in trying to do that at all anyway right um right 
Because I can see even doing that now could be super hokey and a bit like yeah, eye roll inducing. Because <laughs> you could definitely do it in very cheesy ways. Yeah, I think it could be really interesting to play with if done well, but it could be very easy to do poorly. Yeah, I feel like you'd have to exercise a lot of restraint. <laughs> like I even, I feel like the way I would want to stage it is like I wouldn't even necessarily want to actually show the audience Margaret or Catherine, right? Like I wouldn't want to actually like see that. I would want to see basically like Joan talking to herself essentially. Mm. Like that maybe like we watch and like we hear just Joan's side of a conversation. Yeah, because it's 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 interesting because like from a modern perspective it would seem like very much make the case of like well she's seeing stuff that isn't there so she's Mm -hmm. suffering from some kind of mental affliction but she's also like very because she's so consistent there's not like a it feels like weirdly like rational if that makes sense like yeah it doesn't just seem like a bunch of random things that she's talking about. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a psychologist and don't really know what I'm talking about on this front, but I almost wonder if it's essentially just a way that in this context where people did believe in the possibility of this kind of visionary experience, that it really is just actually a way that you mentally process things and deal with your internal conflicts, is that you perceive them as maybe these conversations that you're having with these holy figures. Yeah, yes, I definitely think, like, your perception of what is possible will affect, like, your reaction to what's going on in your own head. And, you know, I think it's important to, on the one hand, acknowledge that, like, yes, you know, as a say, you know, if we are a modern secular audience, we don't believe that she actually had saints come down and tell her things, but that she could have perceived things in that way and it doesn't necessarily map onto what we might diagnose as being a mental illness in a modern context. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very valid point. I also wanted to make a couple of notes about Joan's execution because they include some specific accurate details, including the fact that she is specifically condemned as a relapsed heretic. That's actually a big deal. The punishment is actually almost always harsher if you confess and then recant your confession and relapse into your heresy. I think the emphasis on that is good, even if the piece of paper saying relapsed heretic above her head is a little silly, Mm. visually speaking. Yeah. And also that there are, you know, members of the clergy who are holding a crucifix before her and that there is like, you know, that at some point she was holding a crucifix. I, I think those are little details that are that are accurate, that are interesting, that they've incorporated. However, they add in this kind of mass uprising in response, which I don't believe happened. No, I couldn't find any <laughs> evidence that that happened, but it's... No. Yeah, I, I kind of, I have mixed feelings on it, but like from a an audience member point of view it's quite satisfying in that like yes. people are responding to the protagonist's like anguish by being like yeah. angry on her behalf and it yeah. also serves to emphasize like the brutality of the system that is executing yes joan in that like yeah they're totally right. down with like committing massacres yes to people uh, who and, and our english guards again again reminder that this was banned in england yeah it seems just weirdly touchy to be like you're not allowed to portray things that we may or may not have done 400 years ago in a bad light. It's like, How dare you? Yeah. It's like, why are you taking it so personally? Right. I understand if they're saying, oh yeah, your dad did this. But yeah, it's like, it's, it's a long time ago. Your it's, it's distant fine. ancestors. Yeah. 
Get yeah. out of yourselves. <laughs> so that's really emphasized. And I do think that is, it's definitely a choice into liberty, but I think it is an interesting one, especially is so in light of the fact that as I touched on before, they really worked very hard to try and keep her death from inciting actually any kind of uh, mass response. First of all, they apparently did very carefully expose her charred corpse yeah, like they pass, partially exting- extinguished the flames to be, be like, nope, she didn't get out of this. There she is. She's dead. So that they really emphasized, like, yes, she's dead. So no, somebody running around claiming to be Joan next week is not actually Joan. They do that. But then also they reburned her body twice and threw her ashes in the river in order to uh, keep people from collecting relics. Yeah, it's like, that's very deliberate, and yeah, we're not going to give you anywhere that you can venerate, so don't even think about it. Again, I think it is really interesting in terms of just this question of optics, that this is a moment where they know exactly what kind of resonance Joan can potentially have, they know exactly what kind of elements are kind of important in the cult of the saints. I almost wonder if the emphasis on exposing her charred body is also functioning as a commentary on, you know, that she doesn't have like this, the like incorruptible corpse. Yes. Yeah. Cause there's such an emphasis on like, Hey, we dug them up a hundred years after their death and they look and they're incorruptible. Therefore. Yeah. In my undergraduate degree, it, did a lot about Cuthbert and pulling people out of the ground and going, look, Mm -hmm. their limbs are flexible. Isn't this great? This means they're super holy. I'm like, okay, fine. I mean, you can, there are saints that you can, you know, you can still go see their incorruptible corpses, which, you know, are honestly, for how old they are now, they're not in bad shape. Yeah. (laughs) Like if you go and see Catherine of Siena's head in, uh, in Siena, looks pretty good. All things considered. Yeah. Yeah, for a 700-ish year old head, 600-ish year old head, 66650, I guess, at this point. It's pretty good. Macabre. So, yes. Yeah, well, relics. But as I said, I find it really interesting that they know exactly what they're doing and are very, very deliberately working to keep some kind of cult-venerating Joan from arising. Obviously, they're not successful, but I still think that the fact that they are very clearly trying to maneuver around these expectations and possibilities is really fascinating. Yeah, they were sophisticated people. Like, sophisticated is not meant to be a compliment. It's just like they... Their understanding of this was was quite subtle. That can then lead into the Historia Veritas, where I wanted to talk in particular about Joan in a context of mysticism and heresy, which I'm doing in part because I did do a more kind of straight just discussion of Joan of Arc in my episode on uh, the wishbone representation of Joan of Arc, which uh, I would consider a less overall successful representation of Joan than, uh, than this one. Joan is really, I think, first and foremost, a mystic. That That's actually one of the things that I really like about this film is that it represents her as this mystic and religious figure, as opposed to a lot of other treatments that really focus on Joan as essentially a military figure. Mm, and woman of action in Right. Well, she really isn't. I mean, even when she's in battle, she's mostly functioning as a kind of a kind of to lead battle and to inspire people rather than per se, you know, she's not like an all star combatant. Yeah. (laughs) And so I like that about this film. 
But I think it's also really important to put Joan into this wider context that women's mysticism is not entirely abnormal. If you're looking at the about 13th to 15th centuries, this is the moment where the number of women with a reputation for sanctity really dramatically increases. This is also the period where the number of women who are canonized as saints really jumps up. Uh, There is an even kind of further jump when you think about people who aren't canonized during this period, but who are then canonized later. We have a lot of women saints who are coming from this period. I believe actually when you're looking at kind of the gender of saints, there's a sort of gap that most of them are from are either these martyr saints who are from relatively kind of early period of Christianity. And then there's kind of a bit of a gap. And then you have these mystic saints starting from around the thirty kind of 12th, 13th century. Mm, what do you think accounts for that that big uptick, if you like. It's something that has definitely, I would say, continues to be debated to some extent among scholars. In part, I would say my gut is that it has to do in a lot of ways with the fact that we are seeing a kind of growth of popular religion and growing efforts to create options for popular religiosity. One of the challenges is that you're still in this context in which, formally speaking, Christianity has a relatively limited set of roles for women, including that they're often excluded from, they're certainly excluded from these positions of power. Also, they're even kind of on the margins of uh, orders that are trying to kind of do something different and uh, say, you know, orders that are, say, emphasizing voluntary poverty and preaching, they're often a little hesitant about fully incorporating women into those orders. So that, you know, the Franciscans take a while before they really kind of allow for the possibility of, of the Order of the Clares. And even then, they're like, well, okay, so you're our sister order, but like, you don't get to go out and beg like we do, because that's not a thing that women should be doing. And you don't get to go out and preach like we do, because that's not a thing that women should be doing. So there's a lot of kind of popular interest in spirituality. But at the same time, there are these kind of efforts to close off a number of the avenues that are available to women. So I wonder if it's that, you know, for some of these women who are maybe especially into these religious movements that are happening, that in some ways, the fact that there aren't a lot of normal avenues for them makes them more prone to kind of taking these in some ways sort of extreme avenues. Mm. And then also, like, finding people in the past or recent past, Mm -hmm. or even like contemporary to kind of go, okay, this person is important to me and an inspiration. Yeah. And so then, you know, the more the more this becomes a possibility, the more there are then also new models available for these different kinds of sanctity. It is worth noting that this also includes uh, possibilities for these women to have real power. And so Joan is obviously a pretty good example of this, that she did was quite influential on uh, on King Charles. But the other, of course, great example is Catherine of Siena, who's, you know, this like woman who has a vision where she marries Jesus using his foreskin as a ring. Like she's weird. Yeah. But also arguably convinces Pope Gregory XI to go back to restore the papacy to Rome after a long period of it being in Avignon, which obviously then ends up in the Great Schism. So I guess she caused the Great Schism. But <laughs> And this is this is this is why they were so keen to keep women out right. of stuff. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh uh. Yeah, but apparently she she obviously said some stuff that was less out there than the... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just like a very strange, you know, the past it being a foreign country and all that. 
Yeah, that just the the influence that religion has, right? I mean, the way that people took religion seriously meant that even these figures who, as I said to us, seem like really out there, there were people at the time who would take those visionary experiences really seriously as something that could represent a reality that they had experienced and that they had power because of that, essentially. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I also think that in particular, this film is interesting because one of the things that it actually has a lot of emphasis on is particularly this Eucharistic piety. So the fact that she is very, very invested in being able to hear Mass and to tend to consume the Eucharist, the wafer, which is, of course, believed to be physically transformed into the body of Christ. I wanted to especially emphasize this because Eucharistic mysticism and and other forms of mysticism relating to food and to fasting is really a major part of women's mysticism in the 13th to 15th century. And of course, the classic work on this is Carolyn Walker Bynum's Holy Feast and Holy Fast, which I really think everybody should read. I think it is an excellent book. Eucharistic piety included a number of interesting features. One was the attempt to live on the Eucharist alone. Right. I can see that not being maybe the greatest idea from a nutritional point of view. No, that's probably why Catherine of Siena died when she was in her 30s. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Though if you did take it as literally being the body of Christ, then it's like a really early version of like Atkins or keto. (laughs) Oh, in the sense of it being... All protein. Just a meat-only diet. <laughs> yep. Uh, mm. <laughs> it also includes these weird forms of sensory mysticism in which they have a lot of emphasis on uh, the experience of tasting the Eucharist. So sometimes they describe it as having this indescribable and never experienced otherwise sweetness. Angela Foligno described it as it tasting like just the most amazing meat that she had never experienced otherwise. So really, really good medium rare steak. <laughs> yep. Also, there were a number of women and who had these visions in which Christ or angels actually bypassed the priest and delivered the Eucharist to them directly, something that Joan might have found very convenient uh, at this particular moment in time and unfortunately didn't experience. Mm. This last form of Eucharistic devotion I think is especially interesting in that it touches on one of the issues with women's mysticism, which is that, well, it's something that does have the potential to undermine the authority of male ecclesiastical elites, and that in part because of that, the line between sanctity and heresy is a thin one and often a quite blurry one. Yeah, it's a bit of a tightrope. Yeah, you're you're really walking a tightrope there. It depends a lot on individual perceptions. This isn't exclusive to women. I mean, an example that I actually use with students a lot is that if you compare the writings of St. Francis of Assisi and of Peter Waldo, one of them gets to be, you know, gets to found an order and gets to be considered a saint. One of them's considered a heretic. They're saying basically the exact same thing. Yeah, and my understanding is that when the Franciscans, like, came on the scene, as it were, a lot of the more established orders and hierarchies within the church were like, mm, I'm not sure we're cool with this whole voluntary poverty thing. It seems suspect. Yeah. And I really don't like it that they're, they're criticizing us for having all this money. Exactly. That a lot of these, uh, these kind of new forms of religiosity that, again, the 13th century is where you're really seeing a lot of this. They're interesting because they 
are really cause for concern in that they often involve criticism of the church or the bypassing of traditional forms of church authority. But at the same time, they're really compelling because one of the other things, of course, that's going on is that you also have a increasing concerns about heresy, and in particular, the Cathar heresy, which is also a heretical movement which emphasizes voluntary poverty. And that's actually probably the reason the Franciscans did get incorporated into the church and given the status of an official order is with the idea that they can actually help us combat these heretical movements, that basically we can beat them at their own game by also having these people who are living this apostolic inspired life who are embracing voluntary poverty, that they have, they can have the charismatic authority that these heretical preachers have. Yeah, my understanding is that the Cathars were coming at a point of view that like matter itself was evil. Yes. Whereas the Franciscans were more like, uh, no, it's matter's fine. It's just being acquisitive. That's bad. <laughs> and being greedy. Yeah, so there are real differences that make the Franciscans much more acceptable than a kind of Cathar dualist position. But that, as I said, that they they kind of have some of these features that make the Cathars attractive to the population without being necessarily quite as dangerous. And uh, that then, you know, kind of gives them a status, but also very much also, you know, explains why, you know, there's, if you're kind of moving into the 14th century and the rise of the spiritual Franciscans that, you know, there's essentially a faction of the Franciscans that they're like, ooh, you're going too far toward heresy again. (laughs) So this is, again, something, and this is something that is really common with a lot of these women mystics, that when is your claim that you are seeing God and God is telling you what to do and that God is assuring you of his love for you and of your salvation. Maybe even you're having some visions of God or of Jesus that are like maybe like a little, a little sexy. A little uh, out there. There are a number of those. A little out there. Angela Foligno, I, I love her. She's like, you know, when I climbed into Christ's self car and like we were sort of cuddling and like, I think he is actually naked. Uh <laughs> And she ultimately, uh, she was actually very recently uh, canonized. Okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, she'd been beatified, but uh, the canonization had not been formally canonized until uh, until relatively recently, like I think something like 2016, maybe. Okay, interesting. Uh, like in definitely, definitely in the last decade. So that there are these like mystics who seem really out there, but who do ultimately uh, get to have the consideration of orthodoxy, who are overall respected, and some of whom are even you know, are even canonized and and you know designated as saints. But then you also have women. So like for example, the uh, early 14th century French mystic Marguerite Corette. What she's writing and what her and what her visions look like and the experience that she has of God in some ways doesn't seem that different from things that we see in the writing of other women mystics, but that something about the particular circumstances surrounding her means that she got declared a heretic and burned at the stake. And unlike Joan has not been rehabilitated. Yeah. Yeah, no one went, oh, actually we got that one wrong. Joan, I think, really is this especially fascinating example of this thin line between heresy and mysticism, and that she's the one who got both, that she's the one who got declared a heretic, burned at the stake, but then they're like, oh, never mind about that, and eventually, you know, canonized her. And I think that, as I said, really does highlight, like, that it's not that clear. Well, and the fact that she was, re, you know, rehabilitated, or her 
initial trial was like the verdict was revoked so relatively soon after her death is is yeah. is interesting something that uh or oh, what was i've drawing a blank on her name sorry helen caster dr helen caster mentioned mm-hmm. was that Within a couple of years of her death, there's records of people in Constantinople like asking somebody from the West, mm-hmm. so what happened to that maid who was running around France? Yeah. Whatever turned out with her, you know? And the, the fact that her fame had spread that widely is... Yeah. It's super interesting. To some extent, you know, you have to wonder if that's why there is this relatively quick rehabilitation is because essentially in part of circumstances beyond their control, that despite the efforts taken at the time, her reputation for sanctity wasn't destroyed by her condemnation. It, in fact, arguably only increased. And uh, to some extent, that meant that, you know, the right way to go had to be to embrace her as opposed to standing by this heresy conviction. Yeah, and the Burgundians and the English their alliance broke down and so they didn't end yeah. up wiping out the you know the more established french dynasty which joan was associated right. with so if they'd succeeded in that then yeah joan doesn't get rehabilitated right exactly that you have this official support coming from the you know resurgent and successful uh, french dynasty that obviously matters a great deal so i think at this point we can move into the fabula nostra section where we talk about a film or other piece of media that we might want to see inspired by this one. Mm. Would you like to go first? Sure. I don't have anything super well thought out or detailed, but just in preparation for this episode, I was kind of revising this bit of history, which I knew some stuff about just from my my A-levels and, you know, degree. And it's just like this hugely tumultuous and fascinating but just you know terribly bloody period and i just thought this would very much lend itself to a mini series just like the yeah. whole latter part of the hundred years war so i'm slightly straying away from mm-hmm. the joan of arc storyline i feel like she would be a character who turns up maybe in season two <laughs> yeah uh, but just it's so interesting and there's so much like dynastic you know, fighting and betrayals mm-hmm. and people going to parlay and getting murdered on bridges. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> in terms of like, it just feels like people who like Game of Thrones would be into, yeah. into this. The real 15th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and just like the thing that perhaps isn't emphasized in like modern understandings of Joan of Arc, it's often portrayed as very much like the English versus the French. It's like, well, no, Mm -hmm. actually this is in context of like what we would understand as a civil war between one faction of the, of the French and, and, and another. And then the English just kind of like see an opportunity to Mm -hmm. maybe do well out of this. So I feel like that would, it would be a good mini series. How about you? So one of the things that I find interesting about this movie is that it's one of relatively few medieval set films, which have the potential to be kind of pretty low budget movies. 
because it's really focused on this internal trial sequence that, you know, you don't have showpiece battles. So I actually would be really interested in the possibility of essentially a kind of partial remake of this film by maybe a young and up and coming woman filmmaker. I would love to, I don't have any particular person offhand because I honestly don't know that much about up and coming directors, but if there are any out there who are listening to this podcast and are inspired, I think that you should make this movie. <laughs> uh, I think that it would, again, just be a really interesting opportunity. Also, if you could play with some of the kind of elements of Joan's visionary experiences as well. As I said, essentially, I'm thinking about this as in part a kind of remake. But if I were to talk about casting for it, I would say in some ways, the kind of biggest change I would make other than the fact that I assume a remake made now would have sound would be that I uh, would really like to see a younger actress cast as Joan because uh, while I think Falconetti was absolutely excellent I do think that there would be a kind of additional pathos to some extent added by having somebody who really could kind of play up Joan's youth. Yes yeah that's one of the things that you sort of I don't feel like I had to suspend my disbelief but I sort of like forgot about that element of the story when I was watching it. Yeah. I was just kind of compelled and it didn't bother me that she didn't look like she was 19. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that is a very interesting aspect of, of the story. Yeah, I think it's, you know, very possible in terms of casting that you should really, you know, find somebody who none of us have as of yet ever heard of. But in terms of people who are around at the moment, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, yeah. I think could be good. That was the thing. I was thinking, who could who could you cast? And I kept thinking of like, oh yeah, this is this person is a is a young young actor who's a woman, and like, oh no, she's twenty seven at this point. Like, I remember thinking, right. oh, Sir Sharonan would be good. Oh yeah, she's she's nearly ten years, you know, nearly ten years out from right being nineteen. So yeah, it's it just probably goes to show that my finger isn't super on the pulse with you know upcoming actors, but. Yeah, it, that is definitely a big, big challenge about, like, who do you cast yeah. who has the chops but also is a plausible 19-year-old woman. Right. So, yeah, so as I said, Anya Taylor-Joy is my my current pick on the ground. So she is, I think she's, like, 24, 25. Okay. So close-ish. Uh, Carmen has, I'm sure, very strong feelings as well on this, <laughs> as she is making known. But that I think she's close to the right age. She also, I think, can play a bit younger than she is. And thinking about her role in the Bavitch, I think <laughs> that she in that did a really interesting job of existing at this kind of odd point between the normal and the supernatural. And that I feel like she could absolutely play excellently like a person having visions that we can't necessarily see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that is, yeah, that is an acting skill. This. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, not the yeah. easiest. Yeah, like to I think off. she could. Yeah, I think she could play compellingly. Joan having visions, which I think would be hard. Mm, yes. Yeah, because because yeah, and when I was looking, like a lot of the other people that I came across who are young actors that I think are good, they're like a little just too like plucky. Like I like Chloe Grace Moritz, but I don't think that this is the role for her. I think you want somebody who seems a little like otherworldly and weird. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's the interesting thing about watching a film from nearly a hundred years ago is that it doesn't fall into the trap that I suspect more modern versions of this story would do of like the whole transplanting a 21st century yeah. feminist back into like yes. the 15th century because 
maybe Joan of Arc had ideas of like what was possible within what her understanding of what a woman's role in the world was, but it was not Mm -hmm. going to be the same as what contemporary women would be. And yeah, yeah. So the fact that this is from that far removed means that it doesn't have that like anachronistic weirdness going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would like to see, I would like to see if a modern film could manage that as well. You know, and I do actually think that, you know, the, the Vavitch is interesting in that and that it doesn't have its characters, uh, quite, you know, portraying that sort of ideology, but that the film simultaneously does acknowledge the kind of really messed up, like, gender dynamics at work in that context, so. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because this film still has, that. you still, I mean, maybe this is just being a contemporary viewer and having that resonance of just, like, powerful men abusing their their position to persecute a right. vulnerable young woman. And that it's hard to some extent to totally get away from that. And I don't think you should. I think no, that's absolutely not at what's at not work at here. And that I think the film does an excellent job of doing that without having Joan like say like, hey, you're being mean to me because I'm a young woman. Yeah, which is a little bit too on the nose. Yes, but that is just oozing from the way the film works. Yes, um, yeah. I will say this film uh, This film does not pass the Itch Decker test. Uh, yeah. But no. On the other hand, its central premise makes yes. it harder. <laughs> it's it was always always a losing could. battle. Yeah. yeah, I will I will forgive this film for not passing the If Decker test. I don't think there's any reasonable way in which it could. <laughs> yeah, yes. In the in this alternate reality, yeah, Joan escapes at the last minute. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess the other like Fabula Nostra version of this is just seeing some version of Joan's trial that like uses the text like this film does mm-hmm. just to do it as a stage play i would i could see yeah. that being super compelling yeah i mean i think that the trial transcript is such that i think you could actually really could create either a stage play or a film that really hues very closely to the actual dialogue of the trial transcript you know with maybe a few things like trying to kind of modernize the language here and there yeah and sort of compressing for time and well, oh yeah i mean the the actual transcript is very very long so you obviously wouldn't include everything but as i said i think it works and uh you know and this is again it's one of the kind of many it's a, it's one of the kind of many examples that i have of cases in which i think the real stories are often more interesting than the things that people make up yeah, that I think this trial almost word for word has the drama and has, you know, more drama and more interest than, uh, you know, a number of films that I've seen that just like make up things that make no sense in historical context. <laughs> yeah, this will be exciting. Right. Yeah, it's just even though the reason that we have it is not not super comforting from a point of view of just knowing this story it's incredible mm-hmm. that the documents have come down to us from such a long time ago yes. to give such a vivid p- picture of somebody who would otherwise, you know, you would not expect to hear from. Yeah, and I think it is just so fascinating as well that these are documents that, as I said, are obviously created by people who wanted to see Joan go down. <laughs> And that despite that, she still shines through them as somebody who is uh, committed and passionate and not educated, but clearly relatively intelligent. 
they actually seem to have recorded things accurately enough that, you know, she's she's not demonized in this text. She comes out of it well in spite of their intentions, really to the contrary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, I think it is so fascinating and significant that they used her trial transcript to ultimately prove her sanctity. Hmm. And did they use it also in her in the annulment of the original? I believe result, so. Like, yeah, that I believe they referenced back to they went back to it. Yeah, for the retrial. Okay, so it's not even just well, she comes across well to a modern audience, like uh, essentially contemporary audience could read what she said and go, actually, yeah, maybe. But she was she was good, and this was an injustice. Which again, like, makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways when you think about the fact that, you know, she is really tapping into, in terms of the way that that she's kind of talking about things, she's really is tapping into a lot of models of sanctity in a way that, you know, had a lot of potential, you know, that it's very clear, even at the time, made some people uneasy, because she presented in a lot of ways very classically as a mystic saint. Hmm. So ratings, yeah. ratings. ratings. We kind of spoiled this at the beginning, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it a four point five. I don't know. I'm always hesitant to give things a five. I feel like I need to be harsh. Uh, <laughs> so essentially, I think I'm kind of taking off a half point because I would I would like a little bit more of a sense of Joan as a, not just religiously committed, but specifically as a mystic. I think that you know maybe a little bit more could have been done with that, but. I think this is probably the best portrayal of Joan of Arc I've seen. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think I'm just going to give it a straight five because it just really, like, holds up. I mean, I think it helps me that I'd seen a fair few silent films at this point, even though I haven't seen a Mm -hmm. ton, that I'm more used to, like, the kind of pace and the way that they work than if Mm -hmm. if this had literally been the first silent film I saw. I'm not sure I would have been as... Like, this is amazing, but just having sort of adjusted to that helps. But yeah, I just found it really compelling and it sort of flies by and is very and just very emotionally involving. I mean, and from just a pure film perspective, I'm I'm not somebody who has seen a lot of silent films. And uh, I obviously have, you know, background in terms of this material, but I don't have a lot of background in terms of the kind of pacing and things like that of silent films. And this constantly held my interest. I really, I think just as a movie, this is excellent and absolutely holds up. And I, I would really recommend that anybody with that everybody watch it. It's uh, in the US, it's on HBO Max, at least. Okay, yeah, I watched it on movie in the UK here, but it's like literally got a few more days before it disappears off. So yeah. you might have to do some searching around, but it's a very well renowned film. So there's, you know, you yeah. probably get a very good blu-ray of this somewhere yeah yeah unfortunately i think by the time the episode is released it will no longer be available uh to no, you since... no <laughs> yes but yes but if you're if you're u.s based hbo max okay so are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet sure so i am on twitter at alistair underscore pitts uh, I also have the account for my podcast, which you mentioned at the beginning, Roosevelt's Unite. I'm also an occasional contrib- contributor to the Media Evil Facebook group. So, you know, I'm yes. I'm fairly easily found. So, yeah, yeah, come and say hi. 
And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do join the aforementioned Media Evil Facebook group. But also, most importantly, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at media.evilpod. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ip Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com, where, of course, my producer, Carmen, at least, will be, I'm sure, listening to, reading, and responding to all emails. <laughs> uh, so so thank you, Ali, so much for joining me and for oh. bringing this movie to my attention. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.